Chapter Six of the Rainbow Trail by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the Hidden Valley, Shefford had hardly seen her face yet. He was more interested in a woman than he had ever been before. Still, he reflected, as he returned to camp, he had been under a long strain. He was unduly excited by this new and adventurous life, and these, with the mystery of this village, were perhaps accountable for a state of mind that could not last. He rolled in his blankets on the soft bed of moss, and he saw the stars through the needle-like fringe of the pinions. It seemed impossible to fall asleep. The two domed peaks split the sky, and back of them, looming dark and shadowy, rose the mountain. There was something cold, austere, and majestic in their lofty presence, and they made him feel alone, yet not alone. He raised himself to see the quiet forms of Withers and Naste Bega prone in the starlight, and their slow, deep breathing was that of tired men. A bell on a mustang rang somewhere off in the valley, and gave out a low, strange, reverberating echo from wall to wall. When it ceased, a silence set in that was deader than any silence he had ever felt, but gradually he became aware of the low murmur of the brook. For the rest, there was no sound of wind, no bark of dog or yelp of coyote, and no sound of voice in the village. He tried to sleep, but instead thought of this girl, who was called the Sago Lily. He recalled everything incident to their meeting, and the walk to her home, her swift, free step, her graceful poise, her shapely form, the long braid of hair, dull gold, in the twilight, the beautiful bare foot and the strong round arm. These he thought of and recalled vividly. But of her face he had no idea except the shadowy, haunting loveliness, and that grew more and more difficult to remember. The tone of her voice and what she had said, how the one had thrilled him and the other mystified. It was her voice that had most attracted him. There was something in it besides music. What? He could not tell. Sadness? Depth? Something like that in Naste Bega's beauty springing from disuse. But this seemed absurd. Why should he imagine her voice, one that had not been used as freely as any other woman's? She was a Mormon, very likely, almost surely. She was a sealed wife. His interest, too, was absurd, and he tried to throw it off or imagine it one he might have felt in any other of these strange women of the hidden village. But Shefford's intelligence and his good sense, which became operative when he was fully roused, and set the situation clearly before his eyes, had no effect upon his deeper, mystic, and primitive feelings. He saw the truth, and he felt something that he could not name. He would not be a fool, but there was no harm in dreaming, and unquestionably, beyond all doubt, the dream and the romance that had lured him to the wilderness were here, hanging over him like the shadows of the great peaks. His heart swelled with emotion when he thought of how the black and incessant despair of the past was gone. So he embraced any attraction that made him forget and think and feel. Some instinct, stronger than intelligence, bade him drift. 
Joe's rolling voice awoke him the next morning, and he rose with a singular zest. When or where in his life had he awakened in such a beautiful place? Almost he understood why Venters and Bess had been haunted by memories of Surprise Valley. The morning was clear, cool, sweet. The peaks were dim and soft in rosy cloud. Shafts of golden sunlight shot down into the purple shadows. Mockingbirds were singing. His body was sore and tired from the unaccustomed travel, but his heart was full, happy. His spirit wanted to run, and he knew there was something out there waiting to meet it. The Indian and the trader and the Mormon all meant more to him this morning. He had grown a little overnight. Nas Te Bega's deep by nigh rang in his ears, and the smiles of Withers and Joe were greetings. He had friends, he had work, and there was rich, strange, and helpful life to live. There was even a difference in the Mustang Nakyal. He came readily. He did not look wild. He had a friendly eye, and Shefford liked him more. "'What is there to do?' asked Shefford, feeling equal to a hundred tasks. "'No work,' replied the trader with a laugh, and he drew Shefford aside. "'I'm in no hurry. I like it here, and Joe never wants to leave. Today you can meet the women. Make yourself popular. I've already made you that. These women are mostly all young and lonesome. Talk to them. Make them like you. Then some day you may be safe to ask questions. Last night I wanted to ask old Mother Smith if she ever heard the name Fay Larkin, but I thought better of it. If there is a girl here or at Stonebridge of that name, we'll learn it. If there's mystery, we'd better go slow. Mormons are hell on secret and mystery, and to pry into their affairs is to queer yourself. My advice is, just be as nice as you can be, and let things happen. Fay Larkin. All in a night, Shefford had forgotten her. Why? He pondered over the matter, and then the old thrill, the old desire, came back. Shefford, what do you think Naste Bega said to me last night? asked Withers in a lower voice. Haven't any idea, replied Shefford, curiously. We were sitting beside the fire. I saw you walking under the cedars. You seemed thoughtful. That keen Indian watched you, and he said to me in Navajo, By Nye has lost his god. He has come to find a wife. Naste Bega is his brother. He meant he'll find both god and wife for you. I don't know about that. But I say take the Indian as he thinks he is, your brother. Long before I knew Naste Bega, my wife used to tell me about him. He's a sage and a poet, the very spirit of this desert. He's worth cultivating for his own sake. But more, remember, if Fay Larkin is still shut in that valley, this Navajo will find her for you. I shall take Naste Bega as my brother and be proud, replied Shefford. There's another thing. Do you intend to confide in Joe? I hadn't thought of that. Well, it might be a good plan, but wait until you know him better, and he knows you. He's ready to fight for you now. He'll take your trouble to heart. You wouldn't think Joe is deeply religious, yet he is. He may never breathe a word about religion to you. Now, Shefford, go ahead. You've struck a trail. It's rough, but it'll make a man of you. It'll lead somewhere. I'm singularly fortunate. I, who had lost all friends, Withers, 
I am grateful. I'll prove it. I'll show. Withers' upheld hand checked further speech, and Shefford realized that beneath the rough exterior of this desert trader there was fine feeling. These men of crude toil and wild surroundings were beginning to loom up large in Shefford's mind. The day began leisurely. The men were yet at breakfast when the women of the village began to come one by one to the spring. Joe Lake made friendly and joking remarks to each, and as each one passed on down the path, he poised a biscuit in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other, and with his head cocked sideways like an owl, he said, "'Reckon I've got to get me a woman like her.' Shefford saw and heard, yet he was all the time half unconsciously watching with strange eagerness for a white figure to appear. At last he saw her. The same girl with the hood, the same swift step. A little shock or quiver passed over him, and at the moment all that was explicable about it was something associated with regret. Joe Lake whistled and stared. I haven't met her, he muttered. That's the Sago Lily, said Withers. Reckon I'm going to carry that bucket, went on Joe. And queer yourself with all the other women who's been to the spring? Don't do it, Joe, advised the trader. But her bucket's bigger, protested Joe weakly. That's true. But you ought to know, Mormons. If she'd come first, all right. And she didn't. Why, don't single her out. Joe kept his seat. The girl came to the spring. A low good morning came from under the hood. Then she filled her bucket and started home. Shefford observed that this time she wore moccasins, and she carried the heavy bucket with ease. When she disappeared, he had again the vague, inexplicable sensation of regret. Joe Lake breathed heavily. Reckon I've got to get me a woman like her, he said. But the form of jocose tone was lacking, and he appeared thoughtful. Withers first took Shefford to the building used for a school. It was somewhat larger than the other houses, had only one room with two doors and several windows. It was full of children of all sizes and ages, sitting on rude board benches. There were half a hundred of them, sturdy, healthy, rosy boys and girls, clad in homemade garments. The young woman teacher was as embarrassed as her pupils were shy, and the visitors withdrew without having heard a word of lesson. Withers then called upon Smith, Henniger, and Beale and their wives. Shefford found himself cordially received, and what little he did say showed him how he would be listened to when he cared to talk. These folks were plain and kindly, and he found that there was nothing about them to dislike. The men appeared mild and quiet, and when not conversing, seemed austere. The repose of the women was only on the surface. Underneath, he felt their intensity, especially in many of the younger women, whom he met in the succeeding hour, did he feel this power of restrained emotion. This surprised him, as did also the fact that almost every one of them was attractive, and some of them were exceedingly pretty. He became so interested in them, all as a whole, that he could not individualize one. They were as widely different in appearance and temperament as women of any other class, but it seemed to Shefford that one common trait united them, and it was a strange, checked yearning for something that he could not discover. 
Was it happiness? They certainly seemed to be happy, far more than those millions of women who were chasing phantoms. Were they really sealed wives, as Withers believed? And was this unnatural wifehood responsible for the strange intensity? At any rate, he returned to camp with the conviction that he had stumbled upon a remarkable situation. He had been told the last names of only three women, and their husbands were in the village. The names of the others were Ruth, Rebecca, Joan. He could not recall them all. They were the mothers of these beautiful children. The fathers, as far as he was concerned, were as intangible as myths. Shefford was an educated clergyman, a man of the world, and as such knew women in his way. Mormons might be strange and different, yet the fundamental truth was that all over the world mothers of children were wives. There was a relation between wife and mother that did not need to be named to be felt, and he divined from this, whatever the situation of these lonely and hidden women, they knew themselves to be wives. Shefford absolutely satisfied himself on that score. If they were miserable, they certainly did not show it. And the question came to him, how just was the criticism of uninformed men? His judgment of Mormons had been established by what he had heard and read, rather than what he knew. He wanted now to have an open mind. He had studied the totism and exogamy of the primitive races, and here was his opportunity to understand polygamy. One wife for one man, that was the law. Mormons broke it openly. Gentiles broke it secretly. Mormons acknowledged all their wives and protected their children. Gentiles acknowledged one wife only. Unquestionably, the Mormons were wrong. But were not the Gentiles still more wrong? The following day Joe Lake appeared reluctant to start for Stonebridge with Withers. Joe, you'd better come along, said the trader dryly. I reckon you've seen a little too much of the Sago Lily. Lake offered no reply, but it was evident from his sober face that Withers had not hit short of the mark. Withers rode off with a parting word to Shefford, and finally Joe somberly mounted his bay and trotted down the valley. As Neste Bega had gone off somewhere to visit Indians, Shefford was left alone. He went into the village and made himself useful and agreeable. He made friends with the children, and he talked to the women until he was hoarse. Their ignorance of the world was a spur to him, and never in his life had he had such an attentive audience. And as he showed no curiosity, asked no difficult questions, gradually what reserve he had noted wore away, and the end of the day saw him on a footing with them that Withers had predicted. By the time several days had passed, it seemed from the interest and friendliness of these women that he might have lived long among them. He was possessed of wit and eloquence and information which he freely gave, and not with selfish motive. He liked these women. He liked to see the somber shade pass from their faces, to see them brighten. He had met the girl Mary at the spring and along the path, but he had not yet seen her face. He was always looking for her, hoping to meet her, and confessed to himself that the best of the day for him were the morning and the evening visits she made to the spring. Nevertheless, for some reason hard to divine, he was reluctant to seek her deliberately. 
Always while he had listened to her neighbors talk, he had hoped they might let fall something about her, but they did not. He received an impression that she was not so intimate with the others as he had supposed. They all made one big family. Still, she seemed a little outside. He could bring no proofs to strengthen this idea. He merely felt it, and many of his feelings were independent of intelligent reason. Something had been added to curiosity, that was sure. It was his habit to call upon Mother Smith in the afternoons. From the first, her talk to him hinted of a leaning toward thought of making him a Mormon. Her husband and the other men took up her cue and spoke of their religion, casually at first, but gradually opening their minds to free and simple discussion of their faith. Shefford lent respectful attention. He would rather have been a Mormon than an atheist, and apparently they considered him the latter, and were earnest to save his soul. Shefford knew that he could never be one any more than the other. He was just at sea. But he listened, and he found them simple in faith, blind perhaps, but loyal and good. It was noteworthy that Mother Smith happened to be the only woman in the village who had ever mentioned religion to him. She was old, of a past generation. The young women belonged to the present. Shefford pondered the significant difference. Every day made more steadfast his impression of the great mystery that was like a twining shadow round these women. Yet in the same time, many little ideas shifted and many new characteristics became manifest. This last was, of course, the result of acquaintance. He was learning more about the villagers. He gathered from keen interpretation of subtle words and looks that here in this lonely village, the same as in all the rest of the world where women were together, there were cliques, quarrels, dislikes, loves, and jealousies. The truth once known to him made him feel natural and fortified his confidence to meet the demands of an increasingly interesting position. He discovered, with somewhat grim amusement, that a clergyman's experience in a church full of women had not been entirely useless. One afternoon he let fall a careless remark that was a subtle question in regard to the girl Mary, whom Withers called the Sago Lily. In response, he received an answer couched in the sweet poisoned honey of women's jealousy. He said no more. Certain ideas of his were strengthened, and straight away he became thoughtful. That afternoon late, as he did his camp chores, he watched for her. But she did not come. Then he decided to go see her. But even the decision and the strange thrill it imparted did not change his reluctance. Twilight was darkening the valley when he reached her house, and the shadows were thick under the pinions. There was no light in the door or window. He saw a white shape on the porch, and as he came down the path it rose. It was the girl Mary, and she appeared startled. "'Good evening,' he said. "'It's Shefford. May I stay and talk a little while?' She was silent for so long that he began to feel awkward. "'I'd be glad to have you,' she replied finally. There was a bench on the porch, but he preferred to sit upon a blanket on the step. "'I've been getting acquainted with everybody except you,' he went on. "'I have been here,' she replied. That might have been a woman's speech, but it certainly had been made in a girl's voice. 
She was neither shy nor embarrassed nor self-conscious. As she stood back from him, he could not see her face in the dense twilight. I've been wanting to call on you. She made some slight movement. Shefford felt a strange calm, yet he knew the moment was big and potent. Won't you sit here? he asked. She complied with his wish, and then he saw her face, though dimly, in the twilight, and it struck him mute. But he had no glimpse such as flashed upon him from under her hood the other night. He thought of a white flower in shadow and received his first impression of the rare and perfect lily, Withers had said, graced the wild canyon. She was only a girl. She sat very still, looking straight before her, and seemed to be waiting, listening. Shefford saw the quick rise and fall of her bosom. "'I want to talk,' he began, swiftly, hoping to put her at ease. "'Everyone here has been good to me, and I've talked, oh, for hours and hours. But the thing in my mind I haven't spoken of. I've never asked any questions. That makes my part so strange. I want to tell why I came out here. I need someone who will keep my secret and perhaps help me. Would you?' "'Yes, if I could,' she replied. "'You see, I've got to trust you or one of these other women. You're all Mormons. I don't mean that's anything against you. I believe you're all good and noble.' But the fact makes what well, makes a liberty of speech impossible. What can I do? Her silence probably meant that she did not know. Shefford sensed less strain in her and more excitement. He believed he was on the right track and did not regret his impulse. Even had he regretted it, he would have gone on, for opposed to caution and intelligence was his driving mystic force. Then he told her the truth about his boyhood, his ambition to be an artist, his renunciation to his father's hope, his career as a clergyman, his failure in religion, and the disgrace that had made him a wanderer. "'Oh, I'm sorry,' she said. The faint starlight shone on her face, in her eyes, and if he ever saw beauty and soul, he saw them then. She seemed deeply moved. She had forgotten herself. She betrayed girlhood then, all the quick sympathy, the wonder, the sweetness of a heart, innocent and untutored. She looked at him with great, starry, questioning eyes, as if they had just become aware of his presence, as if a man had been strange to her. "'Thank you. It's good of you to be sorry,' he said. "'My instinct guided me right. Perhaps you'll be my friend.' "'I will be if I can,' she said. But can you be? I don't know. I've never had a friend. I... But, sir, I mustn't talk of myself. Oh, I'm afraid I can't help you. How strange the pathos of her voice. Almost he believed she was in need of help or sympathy or love. But he could not wholly trust the judgment formed from observation of a class different from hers. Maybe you can help me. Let's see, he said. I don't seek to make you talk of yourself, but you're a human being, a girl, almost a woman. You're not dumb, but even a nun can talk. A nun? What is that? Well, a nun is a sister of mercy, a woman consecrated to God, who has renounced the world. In some ways, you Mormon women here resemble nuns. 
It is sacrifice that nails you in this lonely valley. You see how I talk? One word, one thought brings another, and I speak what perhaps should be unsaid, and it's hard because I feel I could unburden myself to you. Tell me what you want, she said. Shefford hesitated and became aware of the rapid pound of his heart. More than anything, he wanted to be fair to this girl. He saw that she was warming to his influence. Her shadowy eyes were fixed upon him. The starlight, growing brighter, shone on her golden hair and white face. I'll tell you presently, he said. I've trusted you. I'll trust you with all, but let me have my own time. This is so strange a thing, my wanting to confide in you. It's selfish, perhaps. I have my own axe to grind. I hope I won't wrong you. That's why I'm going to be perfectly frank. I might wait for days to get better acquainted. But the impulse is on me. I've been so interested in all you Mormon women. The fact, the meaning of this hidden village is so, so terrible to me. But that's none of my business. I have spent many afternoons and evenings with these women at different cottages. You do not mingle with them. They are lonely, but have no such loneliness as yours. I have passed here every night. No light, no sound. I can't help thinking. Don't censor me or be afraid or draw within yourself just because I must think. I may be all wrong, but I'm curious. I wonder about you. Who are you? Mary. Mary what? Maybe I really don't want to know. I came with selfish motive, and now I'd like to, to, what shall I say? Make your life a little less lonely for the while I'm here. That's all. It needn't offend. And if you accept it, how much easier I can tell you my secret. You are a Mormon, and I, well, I'm only a wanderer in these wilds. But we might help each other. Have I made a mistake? No, no, she cried almost wildly. We can be friends, then? You will trust me, help me? Yes, if I dare. Surely you may dare what the other women would. She was silent. And the wistfulness of her silence touched him. He felt contrition. He did not stop to analyze his own emotions, but he had an inkling that once this strange situation was ended, he would have food for reflection. What struck him most now was the girl's blanched face, the strong, nervous clasp of her hands, the visible tumult of her bosom. Excitement alone could not be accountable for this. He had not divined the cause for such agitation. He was puzzled, troubled, and drawn irresistibly. He had not said what he had planned to say. The moment had given birth to his speech, and it had flowed. What was guiding him? Mary, he said earnestly, tell me, have you mother, father, sister, brother? Something prompts me to ask that. All dead, gone, years ago, she answered. How old are you? Eighteen, I think, I'm not sure. You are lonely? His words were gentle and divining. Oh, God, she cried, lonely? Then as a man in a dream, he beheld her weeping. There was in her the unconsciousness of a child and the passion of a woman. He gazed out into the dark shadows and up at the white stars, and then at the bowed head with its mass of glinting hair. But her agitation was no longer strange to him. A few gentle and kind words had proved her undoing. He knew then 
that whatever her life was, no kindness or sympathy entered it. Presently she recovered, and sat as before, only whiter of face, it seemed, and with something tragic in her dark eyes. She was growing cold and still again, aloof, more like those other Mormon women. "'I understand,' he said. "'I'm not sorry I spoke. I felt your trouble, whatever it is. Do not retreat into your cold shell, I beg of you. Let me trust you with my secret.' He saw her shake out of the cold apathy. She wavered. He felt an inexplicable sweetness in the power his voice seemed to have upon her. She bowed her head in acquiescence, and Shefford began his story. Did she grow still like stone, or was that only his vivid imagination? He told her of Venters and Bess, of Lassiter and Jane, of little Fay Larkin, of the romance, and then the tragedy of Surprise Valley. So when my church disowned me, he concluded, I conceived the idea of wandering into the wilds of Utah to save Fay Larkin from that canyon prison. It grew to be the best and strongest desire of my life. I think, if I could save her, that it would save me. I never loved any girl. I can't say that I love Fay Larkin. How could I when I've never seen her? And she's only a dream girl, but I believe, if she were to become a reality, a flesh-and-blood girl, that I would love her. That was more than Shefford had ever confessed to anyone, and it stirred him to his depths. Mary bent her head on her hands in strange, stone-like rigidity. So here I am in the canyon country, he continued. Withers tells me it is a country of rainbows, both in the evanescent air and in the changeless stone. Always as a boy there had been for me some haunting promise, some treasure at the foot of the rainbow. I shall expect the curve of a rainbow to lead me down into Surprise Valley. A dreamer, you will call me, but I have had strange dreams come true. Mary, do you think this dream will come true? She was silent so long that he repeated his question. Only in heaven, she whispered. He took her reply strangely, and a chill crept over him. You think my plan to seek, to strive, to find, you think that idle, vain? I think it noble. Thank God I've met a man like you. Don't praise me, he exclaimed hastily. Only help me. Mary, Will you answer a few little questions? I swear by my honor I'll never reveal what you tell me. I'll try. He moistened his lips. Why did she seem so strange, so far away? The hovering shadow made him nervous. Always he had been afraid of the dark. His mood now admitted of unreal fancies. Have you ever heard of Fay Larkin? he asked, very low. Yes. Was there only one Fay Larkin? Only one. Did you ever see her? Yes, came the faint reply. He was grateful. How she might be breaking a faith with creed or duty. He had not dared to hope so much. All his inner being trembled at the portent of his next query. He had not dreamed it would be so hard to put or would affect him so powerfully. A warmth, a glow, a happiness pervaded his spirit, and the chill, the gloom, were as if they had never been. "'Where is Fay Larkin now?' he asked huskily. He bent over her, touched her, leaned close to catch her whisper. "'She is dead.' 
Slowly, Shefford rose, with a sickening shock, and then, in bitter pain, he strode away into the starlight. End of Chapter 6